Well, tonight we are going to continue our study of second, first and second Kings, and we're going to begin second Kings tonight. So I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have a copy of God's word, to second Kings chapter one, second Kings chapter one. And we come back to our friend Elijah the Tishbite tonight. Second Kings, and it may be helpful for you to know that as originally composed in the Hebrew Scriptures, First and Second Kings were actually one large book. Um, it was in a Greek translation of of the Hebrew Scriptures about um, uh, several hundred years before the birth of Christ. That that because of the sheer size, maybe, but um, was divided into two books. But you see, as you go from First Kings, it just rolls on into Second Kings, and uh, they really are of the same subject, recounting God's faithfulness to Israel and Judah. But in particular, why it is and how it is that Israel and Judah came to be overthrown by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and how these great nations experienced the reality of the judgment of God. So I'm going to read in God's word, 2 Kings chapter 1. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you returned? They said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50, and he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50, and he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. 
Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he again sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. When the third captain of the fifty went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Isaiah, which he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all of your word. And we pray in these next moments that you might impress this portion of your word deeply upon our hearts and our minds. And we pray once again that we might know you and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Well, it's been a bit since we have been in 1 Kings and the Second Kings and the story. And so I want to remind you that this fellow named Ahaziah is none other than the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And we learn in this chapter that Ahaziah falls, but this apple has not fallen too far from the tree. Um, We don't know how he fell, but anytime you fall, it's not very good. Uh, My brother uh, and my dad, but my brother is in orthotics and in prosthetics, and um, he works down now in Virginia. And uh, he would tell me, Gabe, uh, when they lived here in New Hampshire, if there is a winter storm, um, without, without doubt, I can count on being called into the hospital to go in to fit uh, two or three men with casts and, and braces for their backs. Because every winter storm there is in this area, there are men who fall and break their backs because they were shoveling the roof. So um, we hear about that, but it's just a fact. If you fall, it's bad. And we don't know why Ahaziah fell, but he fell from his upper chamber. And it was in the capital city of Samaria, of the ten northern tribes of Israel in the north, by now an apostate nation full of the influence of Jezebel. And, uh, and so Ahaziah falls. He apparently can't get out of his bed. He is very seriously ill, feels he is going to die, maybe even. And so he sends his messengers and sends them to Baalzebub, the god of the Philistines. 
Now, I just want to back up a little bit, and again, I want to remind you that uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't picked, well, we, we ordered some copies, and they're not in yet, but they're on their way. Is that right, Keith? So we have some of these coming, and I want to encourage you to go back and read the first chapter. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he does a really good job. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I don't apologize for using this man's uh, material. Um, and I, it's fun. It's uh, remarkably insightful. And again, tonight, I'm going to be using his outline. And I wouldn't recommend a young preacher to do that, um, but I figure I've earned my stripes I've done enough of my own outlines over 20 years, so I can use his, because it's, it's, I'm looking at it thinking, I'm not going to improve on that. So we're going to learn tonight about God again. And one of the things I appreciate about uh, Dale Ralph, Pastor Dale Ralph Davis, uh, other Old Testament godly scholars like Walter Kaiser, who's a hero of mine, one of the things they do, and these men have helped, I think, in their materials, is help us focus on the God of the Old Testament. A lot of um, perhaps Old Testament studies and previous generations may have tended to study, focus on character studies. And that's not bad. Elijah the Tishbite is a fascinating character, but he's not the focus of the story. And the focus of the story is not how you can be like Elijah the Tishbite. Otherwise, we'd try to figure out how it is that we could maybe grow a little more hair on our body and, and maybe start taking lessons of how to call down fire from heaven. He's a unique character. He's a prophet of God, and he's a man that we have learned a lot from. We were moved by the, by the experience of member him at Mount Carmel and, and this high moment in his life and ministry, and he thinks finally revival's going to come, and he goes, runs before King Ahab with joy, and then Jezebel sends him a note and, and basically says, may you be like one of the prophets you slaughtered. Uh, you'll be like one of them tomorrow, so help me God. And threatens Elijah, and of course he runs, uh, flees for his life, and, and is exhausted, and then he's depressed, and and understandably so. There's much there for us to learn about ministry and about faithfulness and ministry. But the, the text is primarily about the God of Israel, who is our God. And so uh, our outline tonight, which I am taking from uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, is about the God of chapter 1. And first of all, in verses 1 through 8, we learn this God, Yahweh, the God of Israel is the God who detests our idols. The God who detests our idols. Ahaziah is the king, is sick. He is again wounded and maybe he has a broken back. Maybe he can't walk, whatever the case may be, internal injuries or bleeding. And instead of praying to God and calling upon God, after God has so powerfully revealed himself to his father, Ahab, Ahab had a number of opportunities to learn just how powerful Yahweh, the God of Israel, is. Instead, Ahaziah sends not to the God of Israel, but to the God of the Philistines. Ekron is down, uh, Dale Ralph Davis points out, about 45 miles from Samaria. And so it's a ways and instead of calling upon Yahweh, who is near, who can be found anywhere, Ahaziah, the God of Israel, sends to one of their pagan neighbors and asks, inquires of their pagan god, Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, 
Ekron whether he will recover from the sickness or not. And God takes notice. Uh, Ahaziah is not uh, the king of a pagan people, although they increasingly are acting so. He is the king of Israel, the covenant people of Yahweh, of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, and the God of Elijah, who had And the God who had so powerfully just revealed himself in fire from heaven at Mount Carmel. This has happened only a few years before. And surely Ahaziah heard of it, of the power of this God. And yet he sends for a God that is foreign to Israel, the God of Ekron. And again, this is hard for us. Maybe we think, well... Well, now I'm not going to send, when I get sick, I'm not going to call up and send for the God of Ekron, Baalzebub, to come and see if he can find out whether I'm going to live or not, what he can do to help me. But while our idolatry may not be so brazen, brothers and sisters in Christ, are we not tempted to lean on or call upon other resources other than God? I'll say, particularly in this generation, uh, even in the area of health, now, now, let me be very clear. I come from a family that's deeply involved in healthcare. My dad, my brother, my uncle's an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I am, I am, I have benefited greatly from modern medicine. I would not be alive. I, I'm not overstating the fact. I would not be alive if it were not for modern medicine. The sinus infections that I've had the, have filled my head uh, numerous times. I probably, in previous generations, wouldn't have lived. So I'm very thankful for modern medicine. And when I get really sick, I am quick to call the doctor, and I love antibiotics. Well, I don't love antibiotics, but I am thankful for them. Uh, they're, they are amazing, and many of us are alive because of them. But, but using the reality of, of modern medicine and what we're learning about the body is, is one thing. But we need to remember, in even our sicknesses, that we call upon God. And we need to be careful, in, in, uh, as there is in our society, increasingly a pagan society, that we, we don't lean upon mumbo-jumbo and energy and positive. And uh, we got to be careful, brothers and sisters, uh, that some of our medical practices these days are picking up on some, uh, well, how do I say it, uh, some mystical arts. And we don't want to have anything to do with that. So just just be careful. Just be careful. But we can certainly rest upon our money. We can certainly rest upon our influence. It's how hard, how much does it take for us to pray, I guess is what we might know. And maybe our idols, the the level of our idolatry, idolatry can be gauged by the nature of our prayer life. Is that fair? The level of our idolatry can be gauged in part by the nature of our prayer life. If I find that my prayer life is very infrequent, is rather dull, um, as as mine has been and can be at times, maybe yours can, but in that period of time, it's evident that I'm not worshiping the true God, the one who saved me. I'm not relying upon him. I'm trusting in someone or something else, whether it be myself or my own strength or my own resources, or just it'll work out. What's that? That's just like throwing the dice. Um, So God is a God who is not cool with our idols. Uh, 
He is a jealous God as he revealed himself. And so he takes note of Ahaziah's going to the God of the Philistines and asks a very insightful question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire? The question reveals that our, we can have a practical form of atheism even if we outwardly profess to be God's people. We can have a form of practical atheism. We can, and this is especially tempting for us in this age of technology. I mean that seriously and sincerely. It is in our age of technology, and some wise men have written about this very helpfully, uh, David Wells being one of them, uh, who I've referenced before. But, but the idea is that with all of our gadgets, our gizmos, our cars, our modern medicine, now our phones, our computers, our apps, all these things that are tools and in and of themselves not necessarily bad, but actually gifts that can be used for good, there can build up a, a sense that we are self-sufficient. We got this that we start to believe the lie that we are our own gods and goddesses. And that is probably the greatest idol in our age is self. Self-reliance, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. I can figure this out or surely uh, there's some kind of life hack or app that can help me. And that's my first go-to rather than pausing and talking to the God who loved me and gave his son up for me. So God detests our idols. He is, in a sense, the intolerant God. I want to just read a, a little, a few, a few verses, sentences from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. They're not verses. This is not the Bible. <laughs> he references here uh, God's jealousy, and he says... What do we meet in this section of the story? Above all, an intolerant God. The suave, self-appointed connoisseurs of religious taste in our time will be aghast if they ever happen upon this story here in 2 Kings chapter 1. How can Yahweh, in his wild, untamed holiness, sentence a man... Ahaziah to death simply for exercising his religious preferences in a critical hour of his life. Yahweh here is not the democratic sort of God people crave, according to the polls. Our times would prefer the mythology of the ancient Near East, where gods and goddesses were permissive and casual and never insisted upon exclusive loyalty. None of those deities thought it was a mortal sin should one of his or her devotees want to be ecumenical in his devotion. But in the Bible, we meet Yahweh and keep bashing ourselves against his first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Nor is it any better in the New Testament. Jesus goes around insisting folks must smash idols if they would follow as disciples. Jesus is obnoxious as Yahweh. Who does he think he is? Don't miss it. God is, contrary to the wishes of our age, a jealous God. So he's the God who detests our idols. Secondly, look with me in verses 9 through 12. He's the God who defends his witnesses. 
the God who defends his witnesses. So Ahaziah figures it's Elijah. Apparently he dresses in a very modest way, uh, doesn't have much. He has a leather belt, which I, I don't think they're saying that was the style that was in in those days. <laughs> um, he, sound, he sounds a lot like John the Baptist, this Elijah the Tishbite. And in the scriptures, there's a lot of similarity between these two. And so Ahaziah hears the message. Uh, Elijah goes, rather, meets the messengers. They report back to the king, and the king will have none of it. And so he's ready to exterminate this Elijah. Uh, he, wants, he wants him done. He wants him dead. Um, that's why he's sending a captain of 50 men. It's, it's not um, an entertaining party. They're, they're not going to uh, escort him in a kind way to meet with Ahaziah. They are likely on a mission to get Elijah the Tishbite's head and bring it back. And maybe just to be safe and just to make good show impressiveness, they send out a troop of all 50. Apparently these were the units of Israel in the north, and so he sends a captain with his 50. And notice verse 9, the pride of the king that is communicated through this captain. O man of God, and we must not think that that's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a that, that is, it's, he's speaking that in a reverent way. A man of God is a unique title in the Bible and in the scriptures. A man of God is a man who is a spokesman for God, is a holy man set apart for the purposes of God. And so, but he's not using it with respect. He just commands Elijah to come down from the hill. And Elijah replies, if I am a man of God, verse 10, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Wow. Does fire from heaven recall anything? When's the last time Elijah was around when fire fell from heaven? You remember? Mount Carmel. Remember? So, so this didn't happen a long time ago. This is within a few years. And fire from heaven was used as a revealer of who is the true and living God. And here, Elijah is not calling down fire from heaven for some personal purpose. The issue at stake is once again the same issue. Who is God? Yahweh or Ekron, the God of Ekron, who is the true and living God. And so the same test, in a sense, is used. Only this time, it's not altar of wood and stones drenched in water that are consumed, but a whole troop of men. And we've so if you've seen the papers or you see kind of news of any kind today, there's a lot of reports coming from Ukraine about Ukrainian soldiers taking back um, uh, one particular town that was a strategic place. And there are Russian soldiers. Uh, and it's sad to see uh, some of the photos of Russian dead Russian soldiers littering the road and 
It's a reminder that these Old Testament stories, they are not flannel graphs. These bodies are smoldering. Um, They are consumed, but we don't know if they just turn into instant dust or if there are helmets and swords and bones smoking. But it is a terrifying scene. A troop of 50. We're about, I don't know how many we are here tonight. What do you think? Maybe 30? 35? I don't think there's 50 of us. But a few more and there would be 50 of us. And you're outside and you're one of these men and you look up and there is a ball of fire coming straight down upon you. And suddenly you hear the shrieks of your comrades, your fellow soldiers, and you are consumed and engulfed in a blaze of fire. The one troop occurs, and so Elijah stays there, and then Ahaziah sends another group. He sent to him another captain of 50, verse 11, with his 50, and the man said, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. This isn't come down, but now he wants him to, you know, hey, come on, pick it up. Elijah, we want you to come down. Now, this is This is foolishness. But God is defending his servant. God is defending his witness. And of course, we know throughout church history that God does not always defend his servants in this way. Sadly, we know that many times God's servants are the ones who have been consumed by the fire, not the fire of the Lord, but by the fire of persecutions. But God is, in this instance, demonstrating that he can protect his man. And this ought to encourage us that we are under God's protection, that our days are numbered, and that if persecution should come, whatever comes against us, it comes through the hand of the Lord, because the Lord protects his own. The Lord keeps his own. He demonstrated this even in the ministries of Peter and Paul. Remember that even though they experienced many persecutions, they were also protected by God. So we have a God who can protect his people and in some powerful ways. And so two troops are sent. Two troops are instantly consumed. And so the third group comes. And in verses 13 through 15, we learn about the God who deflates our pride the God who deflates our pride. Ahaziah is so proud, he doesn't get the hint. And in his pride, his troops are nothing to him. He's lost 100 men, no big deal. He'll just send another 50. In his pride, all he's consumed with is himself and with his own, his own kingdom. He hates Elijah the Tishbite because he's a man of God. He hates him and he'll stop at nothing to arrest him and to take him out. But the captain of 50 this time, this third captain of the third 50 with his 50, when he comes, he comes in a very different demeanor. He's a smart man. Uh, Can you imagine what that march was like? Reports have doubtless come back to the capital the first two cohorts or troops of 50 were consumed with fire from heaven when they went to arrest this Elijah the Tishbite. 
And as they're marching, they've got to be nervous. They're, they have to obey the orders. Ahaziah and Jezebel, they, they don't tend to take no for an answer. So they're dead men. If they disobey Ahaziah, they can't do that. But they're marching, it would seem, to their death. The previous two groups of 50 have been consumed. What makes them any different? And how can they fight against a God who consumes whole troops with fire from heaven? So this captain, out of concern for his own soul and for his men, as they approach Elijah, maybe as they approach, there's, at the very least, there's got to be parched earth at the very least at the spot where you come to meet if there's 50 men times two who now have been consumed in largely the same spot there could be smoldering bodies there there could be implements of war armor helmets swords bones these men perhaps are standing in the midst of the cremated remains of their fellow troops They are terrified. They are dead men. And so the captain takes on a very different demeanor. He bowed down on his knees before Elijah, begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The man is humbled. And he's humbled through fear. We had a text again this morning from the Lord Jesus in which he announced judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees and upon Israel. And it's frightening. And as I said this morning, the greatest message the world needs in these days is the truth about God's judgment. You'll never be interested in God's grace and God's love until you understand the truth of his judgment. His judgment is here and his judgment is coming. And should people be scared into the kingdom? You bet your life on it. You bet your life. I mean, we act today as though and the only respectful way to come into the kingdom is if we can reason with someone and have a rational argument and help them nicely into the kingdom. The scriptures call out for men and women to flee from the wrath to come, to escape this crooked and perverse generation. to run from fire and judgment and to cling to Christ. I think I said this this morning, but you should be scared of God. I should be. As the scriptures again, as the Hebrews, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's the truth. God is a jealous God. He's a good God. He's a holy God. But he does not trifle with our sin and our idolatry. 
And so, yes, it's not a bad thing to be scared. It's not a bad thing to be scared of hell, to be scared of judgment. And because of that, to cry out to God to be saved and to trust in Jesus Christ. Dale Ralph Davis points out in the hymn Amazing Grace, one line that's often overlooked is this line, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It's a grace if you have a sense of a fear of God. It's not all that we have. We move from fear of God to trust of God to being those who know and comforted that we are his children. But apart from Christ, there's no one who should be comforted. There is no comfort. There is no peace for the wicked. So this man has some sense. He seems sees his moldering fellow soldiers, smoldering fellow soldiers, And he pleads for his life. He humbles himself. He doesn't bargain. He just pleads for his life. It's actually quite a moving picture of salvation. It really is the condition of every sinner, in a sense. Pleading for mercy to the God who is willing and able to grant it. And so the angel of the Lord said to Elijah go down with him. And again, we might be tempted to think, well, this is Old Testament. The God of the New Testament isn't like this until you remember that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, and he's there on the scene. And he doesn't think it's lacking grace for fire to come from heaven. But the angel of the Lord says to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid. So he arose and went down with him. Finally, in verses 16 through 18, we learn of the God who delivers on his threats. The God who delivers on his threats. Elijah goes to King Ahaziah, and maybe by now, Ahaziah is thinking he would have changed his message. Maybe he has a different word. But he says the exact same thing, verse 16. Is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Verse 17, what happens? And the text just kind of moves on like it's a given. So Ahaziah died. We've learned repeatedly in our study of 1 Kings that God fulfills his word. It's one of the dominant themes of First and Second Kings. And here again, it's demonstrated Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. God is good on his word. He delivers on his threats. We should not trifle with the warnings of judgment in scripture. We should not play them down. We should not expect that somehow God will will change his mind the last hour. That is a false view of grace. Biblical grace is always a blood-saturated grace. Grace only comes to us, as we sang 
earlier in the service, only by the blood of Jesus. And so only in Christ are we safe. Only trusting in him are we safe from fire from heaven. The good news in closing is that the same God who delivers on his threats is the God who delivers on his promises. And he can protect his people not only from the threat of enemies without, but praise God that as we trust in him and his promises and the gospel, we are protected from the just judgment of our sins. He's a God who delivers on his threats but he's also a God who delivers on his promises. Fire from heaven, it's an amazing passage and one that ought to never be forgotten by us. I'm sure that those 50 men uh, who were there at the mountain that day never forgot this hairy prophet of the Lord, of Yahweh, coming down from the mountain. And boy, were they thankful when he came down instead of fire coming down from heaven God is a great God. This is a fascinating story, but we need to remember this is revealing to us the God that we worship and serve. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. So I read this morning in closing from 2 Peter. I'd like you to turn there. It's just in closing to make a a New Testament, New Covenant application. Second Peter chapter three. We live in days of mockers and what I've preached tonight, if again, I'm, I'm aware that what I'm saying by the overwhelming majority of people in this area would be thought of as crazy. That's where we are in these days. They've been so lied to, and unfortunately, many times by by pastors, they've been so lied to that God is nothing but love, nothing but grace. I mean, it's, it's as though God had the fire taken out of him. That what we've looked at tonight would be thought of as crazy. Uh, some would be absolutely indignant, seeing that, thinking that this is unbecoming of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That somehow fire from heaven is not in keeping with the grace of God. But here we are in Second Peter, and Peter certainly knew the grace of God. He knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his letter to the believers who are suffering, he says in chapter 3, verse 3, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For as ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Sounds just like Ahaziah or Ahab or Jezebel. Mocking unbelief. But, Peter says, verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for 
fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. Perish in what? Fire, hellfire, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? My heart, I'm sure your heart, could never be short supply of a little more humility, a, a little more trembling, a little more bowed before my God. And I pray that for Christ's people tonight, this text helps us and reminds us that we have a great and awesome God that we serve and that it is for us to fear him with fear, to serve him with fear, trembling, love, and adoration. May it be so. Let's pray. God of fire, we come to you and we praise you for your holiness and for your zeal for your own name. We are, if we have our wits about us, a bit shaken by, again, the text tonight as out of zeal and jealousy for your own name and hatred of idolatry, you you had fire fall from heaven to consume on that one day 100 men. And we know this, Peter has alluded to, that on in one period of time, 40 days, you flooded the entire earth. And, but for a family, you, in your wrath and injustice, judged the world. We are in awe of you and we are learning that you are maybe a bit different than we've been told sometimes. Portions of your word perhaps have been hidden from us or neglected. So tonight we want you to know that we love you, we adore you, we fear you, and we are so grateful that you are the same God, faithful in judgment, who is faithful in salvation. And we thank you that in Christ, your Son, you have provided an absolute certain shelter from the fire of your judgment and so that we are safe and we are comforted. I pray for any who are here tonight who have not yet trusted in Christ as their Savior, that if they are frightened, young or old, that tonight even they might trust in Jesus for salvation, that they might run to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.